Hello, everyone. A very quick one from me. It would be a massive help to us with our ambition to help as many recruiters as possible achieve their goals and also inspire the next generation to choose recruitment as a career if you hit that follow and subscribe button. If you're someone that prefers to learn in a visual way, we've also recently invested a lot in our video podcast experience. So in the show notes, you'll always be able to find the link to watch the video on our YouTube channel and make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Thank you so much for supporting the show and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, Hisham Mazuz, and on this week's episode, I was joined by Seb, who's the managing director and owner of Reverec Recruitment. They've been going for five years. They're now up to 18 people. Last year, they did 1.4 million turnover with around 20 to 30% profit margins. This business is mainly perm, and they specialize within the STEM markets. Now, in this conversation, Seb is a super honest and authentic guy, which I absolutely love. And we go into detail into the challenges in growing this business, but most of all, how he's really approaching scaling his company, the infrastructure that he's going to have to invest in to help it continue to scale without it breaking, the leadership team that he's going to have to develop. And we go into the real intricacies of what is top of mind for someone who is in the trenches right now of scaling and growing a recruitment company that's entirely self-funded. Enjoy this week's episode. Let's get into it. Seb. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for making the trip. It's all right. It's good. Enjoy your content. You strike me as someone that's, uh, you know, not afraid to share your opinion. And I've, uh, I always respect that, particularly in today's world. And I also put in here, which I'm going to speak to you about. I feel like you are like the king of polls. Like you put out a lot of polls on LinkedIn. (laughs) I do like putting out polls. Yeah. They get good engagement though. And then it seems to be as if people then see my other Posts? Posts, yeah. It's probably more serious. So I like yeah, polls. I've got though. a question around polls. I just, when I think of like, when I go on your profile and I was looking at this, I was like, you're just always asking interesting questions yeah. with, with polls, which I find uh, really interesting. But so we're here to talk about your entrepreneurial journey, which over the last five years you've been building your own recruitment business. So yeah. I know you, you've been in the industry for over 10 years. So I just want to give everyone some immediate context and then we'll, we'll get into this and, and unpack this entrepreneurial journey that you, you've been on. So feel free to correct me if I've got any of this wrong, but started your business, Reverec, in May 2018. And some of the key sort of highlights and milestones here. So first year was just yourself. So yeah, first year was just yourself. So first year revenue was around £175,000. Second year, there was about three of you and revenue was around 290. Third year, 350, three people. Fourth year, 780. And fifth year, most recent year, 1.4 million, and you're operating around, uh, you shared me 20 to 30% profit, and there's about 18 officially of you, and you have big aspirations to get up to, to 40 people now, Yeah, have no intention of selling this business, and you're really excited about some recent markets like Germany, East Coast. So yeah, there's some of the highlights. Yeah. Yeah? That's correct. Cool. So let's start with the million pound question, which is, and I think, I know I always say this, but you know, understanding your hiring model, which from what I understand is recruiters that have experience, oftentimes. What do you believe are the characteristics and traits that make up a, a highly successful recruiter in, in today's market? Well, I can go on the best people that I've ever seen. 
and I would use the word obsessive. Mm. They're kind of really obsessed with the detail of what they're doing. And it's not just the process of what they're doing. It's they have to be the best. So every aspect, if there's someone set a new level in, they still have to beat them. Mm. It doesn't matter what it is. They're just obsessive about all the detail of what they need to do to be the best. But that's the A-grade billers. So they know they have the knowledge. Mm. They've got all of that. But it's then the desire based on their obsession to be the best. And that's they're the best people I've ever seen. Mm. How do you try and find that and see that in the interview process? The reality is it's really difficult. Mm. I think the challenge for us is when we kind of started, because I was on my own, I didn't really want to take in people that were quite junior and train them up because then if I'm the main biller and I've got to train someone at the same time, it's then really difficult. And mm. obviously with trainees, the reality of it is there is a high turnover. They may not work out. Mm. So we looked for people that are relatively experienced when we started. We've moved probably in the last kind of nine months. Our plan for you know, moving forward is to look at graduates and people that are probably second jobbers mm. who want to come into recruitment because I think if you're looking at experienced people only, that's really difficult. But trying to find people who are obsessive, who are brilliant, if I'm being honest with you, really, really difficult. You have to more look at... They've got the certain traits about them, i.e. they really want to be the best. They've got a desire there. But perhaps where they've been, they haven't had that nurtured or developed. And you can see they're keen, they're enthusiastic, but maybe the company they've been at has held them back. Mm. They have a desire. Their reason for leaving is because they want to be better than where they are. They've got a need to go and do it. And that's the best that you can probably look for, looking at the potential rather than the finished article. Because as a smaller startup business, I think the reality is it's really difficult to be able to just go... I want A-grade billers, let's go and get A-grade billers, in, unless you've got a massive cash pool of money and we're self-financed, so the reality is you have to have some form of compromise and you have to therefore look at the potential rather than look at the finished articles. Mm. I know you shared with me that you always had intentions to grow this business. Yeah. If that was your intention, how difficult was that first year, being on your own? It was difficult, but not for the reason I expected, to be honest. Actually, I thought the difficult part would be, because I had a restrictive covenant and I was a regional manager when I left, I bite by it strictly. I didn't go out and just start working with clients or try and push my luck. I had to build a new desk. My initial kind of thinking was it's going to be really difficult. And I backed myself as a very good BD person. That was always my strength. But I didn't think it would probably be... I, I thought that would be the hardest bit, getting the BD on. The actual part that I found really hard and why I've got a lot of respect for people that work from home... I found it really difficult being on my own in a spare bedroom in my house. You know, people go, oh, it's great. I love it. Within three weeks, I'm talking to myself in there. I, I was going mm -hmm. climbing the walls. So if anything, I used that as a desire to go, right, I have to definitely get an office. This is the goal. This is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So I knew I wanted to do that anyway. But that was the hardest bit, the kind of isolation, the loneliness. Because mm -hmm. you want to build something and you've got ideas and you want other people on board, and it was more or less that year was trying to get the cash flow together to kind of then go, right, let's bring some people in, hire two, three people, bring them on board, and then start going from there. Speak to a lot of founders that that is their biggest challenge. Is there anything that you did to help with that besides speaking to yourself <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the room, right? Was it was your partner really important in supporting you? Was it like what, what actually helped you? Well, yeah, I mean, I've always made an effort to make sure I had a lot of friends in good positions in recruitment anyway. So I'll regularly go, even now, for lunch with other directors of bigger firms than we are, and I'll sort of bounce ideas off them. I think some companies and some people are kind of guarded against doing that. 
mm. having a chat with different directors because they think, oh, I don't want to give them ideas. Mm. But the reality is most people like that kind of thing. So for me, a lot of it was trying to have a chat with people, trying to have an engagement, things like that to bounce ideas off, see where you're going, people perhaps who'd been in the same position as I had been before and went from there. And my wife's really supportive. She co-owns a company, but she's a bookkeeper by trade. She's not a recruiter, so I didn't understand the recruiter side of it. So I was, it was basically me doing it from there. And it was fine and she was supportive and stuff. I just think the the outlet, I guess, you, you want in that position, and I'm glad to say you, you, you said you sit other people in the same spot, was you want a bit of social interaction. I am probably more an extrovert than an introvert. Mm. And I think that was probably the difficult part for me. I really respect that you built relationships with other recruiters or recruitment directors, as you said, because I'm just a big believer that, one, there's enough business out there for everyone. Yeah. And two... I feel like the more knowledge sharing that we do, it's, it's why we do this this podcast. Like the more knowledge sharing that we do as an industry, the the better chance we have of overall raising the the levels of service, the standards in in our industry. If we're all striving to just continue to improve, be better, and deliver yeah. better better service, right? So, how important have if that was quite important at that stage? Have you had had mentors on this journey? Have you had people that? you've sort of tapped into or lent on or spoke to at periods in this five-year journey? Has, has that been quite important? I wouldn't say, if I'm being honest, I've had like mentors or I've gone, you're going to be my mentor to teach me how to do it. But I would say I've taken a lot of vi- advice off people. The position I was kind of in was I was a regional manager. So I'd done the assistant manager, the team manager, the regional manager. And before I even got into recruitment, and I got in recruitment Fairly late, even though I was a graduate, I was sort of 25. Before that point, I'd been a manager in mobile phones. So I think I was fairly comfortable with the kind of management and the aspects. And whenever you're a manager of something like that, you always, there's a bit of a, a loneliness anyway, because you're on your own, you have to be comfortable with that. And I think I was okay with that. But there wasn't specifically a, a mentor. It was more or less, I sought advice, I asked a lot of questions. Same as same as when you're learning, when you want to come up in the, in, the, mm. in the ranks as a recruiter, you'll ask a lot of questions. So for me, it was you've done this before, can ask a bit of advice. And people, if you ask, are really happy to help. Mm. But I wouldn't say I was an individual mentor, no. But yeah, but got advice when you, yeah, you're just curious about certain things. Yeah. I guess I'd be silly not to ask, looking back, like, and, and now tapping into your own experience, because you've now gone on that journey, you've trodden the path. Yeah. What was the best advice that you got given, do you think, in the early stages? I don't know. I guess it was the... Could, kind of continuously look to improve no matter where you are you're always looking to and it was kind of a a belief that I I kind of had anyway but a couple of people had sort of said to me whatever happens as you go through it markets change industry changes you'll change you'll evolve your company circumstances will alter as you grow but you're always looking to to learn but be proactive about trying to learn so for me off the back of that I read even more. So I've got like a crazy and obsessive about sort of management and leadership books. I, I don't know why. I just love reading all this kind of stuff. I'm just mm. a bit of a sponge for knowledge. But the more you kind of learn, the better you'll be. Like knowledge, I know it's a bit of a corny line, but knowledge is power. So for me, I wanted to know as much as I could. I, I've, And I think the, the best advice that I've had was kind of never stop being a student of the job. I love that. And I think recruiters that think they've completed recruitment because they've built 300, 400, whatever the number yeah. is, that's a mindset they want. I'm sure you try and instill in people as well, right? Well, yeah, there's there's always more to do. Mm. I just I, I find it really difficult to kind of um, if you have someone that goes, I know it all, and it's just from from my end coming up in the ranks. And I was I was probably more obsessed rather than I was I was never top biller, but I was always one of the top billers. But mm. my main bit was 
Mr. Consistent, I'm going to overtake everyone and progress. So I broke the record to get from a trainee to a regional manager. And that was, I wanted to progress. I wanted to beat everyone. So my thinking was, anyone around me seems to think that they know it all. They're the daddy. What do I need to do to know more than them so I can overtake them? And I'm just, I don't know, that kind of competitiveness, I think, was something that I got from learning different stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, no. I, I just really like that because when you do go out on your own you and you've been used to working in a team, you instantly lose the ability to learn from the people around you and, and learn from other people. So I can understand why that would be a really you know sound bit of advice. I guess if we could just hone in on a, on a certain part of this journey over the last five years, because I think it's often, when I speak to other recruitment founders, a really difficult period. So I know... You know, second year, third year, there was around three of you. Was it the fourth year that you then sort of entered? There was more like ten of you, and and going. Yeah, above we've that? we've yeah, we probably expanded a lot more recently. I mean, the main problem, I guess, there was two problems that we had, which were we were in a market which was heavily challenged by COVID. So I know a lot of tech recruitment founders. Obviously, COVID happened, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's great for them. We weren't really in tech then. We sort of. Only our like our tech side of it's only really started going over the last kind of nine months or so. It's a newer team. My background and what we built on was kind of engineering and manufacturing. Imagine going into COVID, where I'd started for the first year, 2018, 2019, wanted to hire. Then all of a sudden, March 2020 lockdown, nine months in, and we're doing most of our desks were manufacturing. They shut all the factories immediately. You've all the cash you built up to try and hire people then you're like, right, I've got to keep that in the bank. You can't go out hiring people at that moment. And we didn't have the knowledge just to change market completely. We had to adapt and be quite flexible at the point and get into things we probably hadn't done before. So at that point, it was, if I'm being honest, probably playing it fairly safe. Mm. But then after that point, then we started getting better, understanding the niches that work, looking at the data, started hiring in people from other companies who had experience of it, and started bolting in things and folded it into what we did in the STEM markets and then I think we've started accelerating. So now we're just kind of continuously hiring every sort of person every, I don't know, three weeks, mm. probably. We had someone start this week. Three people started sort of a month ago. Someone started a month before that. So we just started the real, it's been yeah, like, it's well, recent, the last twelve months has been really... Yeah, more recent, yeah. So it seems like one of the, the lessons then was the importance of diversification then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the irony of it is a lot of people kind of say... When you start up, it is true, you kind of, and I've, I think I've heard it on your podcast as well, but people have said it other places, it's mile deep, inch wide. That's great if you want to get in. The problem is if that mile wide or mile deep sort of niche, or mile deep kind of niche collapses, your eggs are all in one basket. Mm. So I think if anything from COVID, it was then kind of a wake-up call, yes, be an expert in your field, but also have enough flex as a business that you can ride when you're in a downtime, when you're in a bit of a, a difficult period, otherwise you just go out of business. And I think that... You know, you see the statistics on new companies starting up that fail. And you hear the success stories as well, but most companies fail for a reason or for a few reasons. One of them is that they were kind of caught in a niche that then collapsed and then they don't have any flex. So I I do believe you need some flex as a business to be able to deal with the ups and downs of the market. So with that lesson then, would you mind sharing how you've now got it set up? What you said, obviously, the STEM market. So what, what does that actually look like? So your bread and butter was manufacturing. Yeah. So what would be the typical client at that stage before you did diversify? What was like the typical type of company? This podcast is proudly partnered with 1UP Sales. So before we dive into our topic for the day, 
Let's take a moment to talk about something crucial to any successful recruitment business. Engagement. When your recruitment consultants are engaged, they're more productive, more efficient, and simply better at what they do. But how do you boost engagement? Well, that is where 1UP Sales comes into play. This innovative sales performance management platform leverages the power of gamification to make work, not just work, but something exciting, competitive, and rewarding. We all know how competitive recruiters are, and it's delving into that, it's tapping into that. So with features like dynamic leaderboards, personalized competitions, and real-time analytics, 1UP Sales helps to motivate your team, pushing them to achieve their best. And with 1UP Sales, you're not just managing your team, you're inspiring them to greater heights. Engage your consultants, empower your business. Let's 1UP your agency. Because you listen to this podcast, you will get 10% off the user price forever. You're not getting this deal anywhere else. Click the show notes, check out the product, book in a conversation, and you're going to get your hands on an absolute game-changing piece of tech that's going to enable you to engage and motivate your recruitment teams. Now let's get back to the episode. We would have had a lot of aerospace and automotive and stuff like that. And you would hire what, the people? Well, yeah, you'd have, so you'd have maintenance engineers, design engineers, you might have electrical engineers, mechanical project managers, all this kind of stuff. But obviously if they're working in factories and they just close the factories down and they're non-essential, the production just stops. They don't need to hire anyone. Mm -hmm. And still to this day, we're mainly perm. Yeah. So the problem is it's not as if you can have a contract to run in the background. And the contracts we did have running at the time, they just shut them off as soon as... So it was kind of March 2020 because I don't need them. So that was where we were in. But the setup now is where we have an engineering team, which is a general engineering team, which will deal with the kind of stuff that you would look at that's necessity. Okay. So stuff needs to be fixed. Stuff needs to be improved. There needs to be quality checks in place for regulations, across manufacturing, across engineering. That's a core part of it. And that tends to be a fairly safe, predictable kind because of place. it's essential. It's essential, yeah, which was a market that we wanted to make sure they've got a safety net. So... If you look at it generally, depending on what, regardless of what happens in the market around it, you'll still need those kind of roles filled. There'll always be a demand for them. So that's one part of it. The other part we've got is an advanced engineering kind of thing, which is more someone's coming in, they want a £20,000 sort of fee roll, £30,000 fee roll, something like that, a real specialist, high-level engineering director, project director, that kind of stuff. Then an expert in it, we will go out, it's much more the kind of, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't describe it as headhunting, but the kind of roles are given us are going to be a lot harder mm where you come in and the volume will be slightly lower, the fees are much higher. And then the other part of it is a tech team, which is broken into, at the moment, software, data, and then Germany. So we do software and data in the UK and software and data in Germany, but that's a much smaller part of what we want. But those are good, again, core area of tech that we can then establish ourselves on it and then bolt on product and bolt on different areas of Mm -hmm. it as we expand. So what we've kind of done is got three separate parts of the business, three different revenue streams, if you like, which then balance out in a fairly... The tech probably is a little bit harder on the market at the moment, but certainly from an engineering perspective, that's booming, so that's doing really mm-hmm. well. So we've got flex is the point of it. And then do they overlap at all in terms of, like, the tech side? Are you targeting manufacturing companies that are, you know, yeah. implementing certain... I don't know, you know, the. I think when I spoke to some engineering recruiters, it's like you have these, like, robots in manufacturing. Digital tra- transformation. Yeah, stuff like that. So, yeah. like, are you trying to be intentional around that? Yeah, what you want to do is you want to kind of... You don't want to be 
right, there's one arm of the business over there, one arm, yeah. and they're not connected. You want it to be where it folds within it. So therefore, for some of the accounts we've got on, we've got some big multi-billion sort of PLC companies, we've also got some SMEs. But what you'll find is there's a bit of a pattern in there. The multi-billion companies will have a requirement for all of the types of roles we can support them with. So therefore, that same client, we can get in there and then be able to land and yeah. expand kind of with them by having a kind of a lot of crossover on what we can are offering, which gives us a lot more benefit to be able to get in there and maximise getting on that asset account, if you like. But with the SMEs, a lot of the SMEs that we get on fit within the supply chain of those businesses. So therefore, if you can help one SME within the supply chain to that end company, you can also help other ones. And we end up kind of using it as folding the expertise that we've got in there to really maximise the client base that we have, our offering of what we can do for them, and then get a lot of repeat business out of it, as well as trying to BD other companies in there. And that's how we're kind of scaling. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. That's super, super smart. And kudos to you to taking that lesson and really making sure that you're set up moving forward so you not, aren't as vulnerable as, yeah. as as you said, right? So just curious on that, you said what your background was. Yeah. How difficult have you found it to manage people in a market you've never done? I'd say there's two ways you can look at it. I think when I started, I would have... Not here, but when I started probably in, in when I first got sort of a team manager at my previous company, it was just within the markets that you dealt with. But there were, we had different kind of, I would say it's more generalist rather than verticals, but I wanted the team to kind of have vertical specialisms within it. And the reality of it is developing people who then get a knowledge for a field that you don't know. You can't necessarily give them the direct advice. So more or less, your, your, your measures of whether they're doing well or not really come down to, are they meeting their targets? Are they improving year on year? Are the numbers in terms of efficiencies and productivities going up? And you have to kind of have kind of a, I'd say more of a pragmatic viewpoint on it. So for example, now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know anything about the data markets directly. Mm. But I think if you want to manage a company and you want to scale your company, if you're limited to, I can only manage people or I'm only confident to manage people, that I know the markets they're in, you're going to be really difficult. So it's more about trying to manage people and then trying to hire in. And this is what we got in terms of the people who are in the tech sector, the tech market that we've hired. The core ones are very knowledgeable on those markets there. And I have to trust them. So I'm basically trying to hire, and look, it's not unique to us, but when I try to hire heads of something, I will deliberately try and get people that know a lot more about it than I do. And again, I'm seeking advice from other people who are in those markets that are other directors of other companies that will give me fair advice to go, actually, yeah, they're credible. They know what they're talking about. Go with that person. And that person can teach me things as well. Mm. Otherwise, you're just you never going to scale. If I'm only going to go, I'm only going to hire people that I know what they're talking about. It's really mm. difficult. It does offer a challenge. Don't get me wrong. But you have, to, you have to come to a point where you're like, right, there is a level of trust that you have to go in there. And as long as... The numbers, the credibility's there, and you can you can formulate and understand this person knows what they're talking about. You can you can kind of work with that, but it's much more people management rather than teaching them how to do their job because you don't know what they do as well as they do. Yeah, sure. I guess what would be helpful for people if you don't mind sharing. So, like, understand that the people management piece makes complete sense. Like you said, you've got to trust these people. You've got to really try and get people that are obviously smarter than you in these certain yeah. areas. So, would you mind sharing like? what would those dashboards look like that give you confidence that they're on the right track? And, you know, what are some of the key things that you're looking at to go, right, I'm investing in this person, I'm investing in this data team, 
from what they're sharing with me, they're telling me about the market at the moment, these things, what are the things that you're keeping close eye on to make you feel confident that they're going in the right direction? Is it, are you mainly looking at the number of new client meetings they're booking on a quarterly basis? Is it the, you know, the ratios that you're keeping close eye to? What does like, you know, Seb's dashboard look like on the people management side? You look at two factors, okay, if in terms of, I guess, kind of inputs, if you like. One of them is the productivity, one of them is the efficiency. Okay. okay. So you set a benchmark of where they are in the first place in terms of what productivity they have, what efficiency they have, and then you've got an initial benchmark. And then you'll ask other, you, you take advice from other people in the marketplace about that particular sector or whatever. What should they be doing? What's good? What's bad? What billing should they be doing? This kind of thing. And again, that's utilizing your network of people that I, I kind of know. And then you see that trajectory even mm. of where they're going. So you're looking for productivity increase, efficiency increase. That's what you can gauge from the numbers there. But the reality of it is what you're looking for, are they billing more? That That's the outcome. Is are they billing more than what they were? Are you getting an accurate return on investment? Are you in a position where you can see it where there's maximise it? They're going in a, an upward trajectory on the two areas that you want. And are you in a position where financially it's generating you a profit to continue to invest in that team and expand it? I know some people kind of want to look into it more complicated than that, but it's literally you're looking at productivity and efficiencies, understanding what benchmarks you need to aim for, and is it an upward trajectory? That that's that's what I would look at. What would be helpful for people is give us an example of what would fall under productivity. Okay, so productivity for us is more in terms of we would look at the front end vacancies and probably CV sent and seeing if it's it, it's a good kind of market. Okay, some markets if you're doing more, let's say advanced engineering you'd be in a position where you'd expect a lot less CV sense. It's more headhunting because they're more niche roles than general engineering. So we'll know the benchmarks of what you should be sending. So if you're doing an engineering director, you're probably not looking at sending five CVs in the first week or something like that. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing a maintenance engineer, we'll know all the maintenance engineers and all the companies that require maintenance engineers in, let's say, Birmingham, would have mapped out that market. You'll know that you could probably get four or five across to each that meet the spec, that meet the motivational standards of what that particular client wants, and that that client you know is probably going to go, I want to see at least four of them. So you can go, that's a good productivity. There your, there your productivity is really what you're looking at in terms of CV sent and vacancies. But then again, if you're doing German Ruby developers, for example, that's going to be quite niche. You're never going to get that many people out there. So you know your benchmarks on that. So really it's against understanding what your benchmark should be for vacancies and CV sent compared to that market that you're working in, that vertical. And then what about efficiency? What's so efficiencies, we measure a few things that are probably different to a lot of companies. So I'm one of those people who likes my spreadsheets. I geek out on this kind of stuff. So I want to know the amount of average, how much we've covered in terms of vacancies. So we want to above sort of 50% coverage. So for every vacancy you raise, you want at least 50% coverage on that. Again, certain markets, you know... If so what, sorry, what does coverage mean? Sorry, what do so you mean? coverage, if you have two vacancies, you would at least have one of them that you would get interviews for. Right. So that's certain jobs, which are going to be... That's a general kind of minimum you might have in engineering. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it's a new client, and you're talking about averages across the field. So if it's a new client, you might have commitment issues or anything like that. But if it's an experienced client, you're probably looking at about 75 80% coverage. So... For every five roles, four of them, you've you've managed to get past the interview stage. Then you're also looking at efficiencies of how many people you've got in for each of those interviews. And you want at least two and a half to three people in for each interview. Therefore, the client's in a position where they're going to have, they're going to be satisfied that they've seen a variety of people and they're more likely to pick one sooner. Then you've got turnaround time in terms of CVs, turnaround time in terms of decisions, turnaround time in, 
in terms of getting feedback, prep work, all of these things, if you're really tight on those factors, you maximise your chances of placing and being really efficient at placing people. And it all comes down to that efficiency is if you're doing work, you're maximising, certainly from a contingency recruitment perspective, how efficient you're going to place everything. Mm. And obviously, as a retainer or if it's exclusive, then you still want to make sure you deliver on it. Otherwise, you're going to lose exclusivity or you have to give back some of the retainer. So you still need to be efficient. It's a big thing that we're kind of obsessive about. I love that. I, yeah, that's that's why I asked the question. I wanted to know what was on your spreadsheet. <laughs> that's what I work with, yeah. So so just, just to recap on that for people, because look, I understand what you're saying about, obviously... That keeping it simple, the outcome should be going in the upward trajectory. Yeah. But for you to feel confident in terms of the cost that you're adding to your business and supporting yeah. them and adding the cost to your business, you've got to see these things on this spreadsheet going in the upward trajectory, right? You've got to see those inputs. Yeah. Because you know if they keep going in the right direction, then the outcomes will come. Yeah. So as you were saying, so from a productivity standpoint and things like vacancies on, number of CVs out, and then efficiency, you're saying, so coverage is, if I've got two jobs on and one of those jobs I was able to get one to three interviews for, that's me covering that job. Yeah. Right? And then you're saying then the turnaround time from interview to what feedback on and like the turnaround times on those things. Yeah, you're looking at, because you've got to bear in mind, you want to work with clients that are willing to work with you a little bit here. If you, you'll have, certainly when you do new business development, you'll work with clients where there's a, an issue with commitment, let's say, you might have that risk where they'll say to you all the right things, we will want to see these candidates. If you send us these candidates that meet this grade, that are this motivational match for us, we will see them in X period. However, then you often find they don't hold their word, there's problems, there's a commitment issue. Okay, so you have to have some flex for that because you have to go on a bit of a goodwill word. But when you start dealing with repeat clients, obviously the ones that are efficient, then you, by working with the client and they understand that if we meet this criteria in terms of turnaround time, we'll be able to deliver this for deliver this for you, this will be the outcome for you and we'll be nice and efficient. So you end up having clients coming back to us time and time again going, I know if I ask Reverek for this, I'll get this in this period and it's like a yeah. productivity straight away. It's, it's a very efficient kind of machine. That is what we're trying to replicate across our markets and continue so we can scale. Makes sense. So... A lot of founders that I speak to in the recruitment industry can often find the period from going from 10 to 20 often quite difficult. Yeah. Let's just focus on that for a sec because you're like in the thick of this right yeah. now. Are there any, you know, obstacles, barriers that you are finding yourself run into that maybe you didn't expect in this growth period? What have you found maybe more difficult than you an anticipated? This podcast is proudly sponsored by Vincherry. Now, what I wanted to ask all of you today is the following. Is your recruitment CRM efficient? Is it helping or hindering your business development efforts? Here are the three biggest signs that your CRM is dragging you down. One, data's missing, scattered information and unsearchable candidates. Two, user adoption. No one likes using the system or worst, aren't using it at all. Three, accessibility. Your consultants are having a hard time locating the data and only a few know how the system works. If your CRM is not delivering value, don't settle. Your database is your biggest lever for growth. And because you listen to this episode, you will get 10% 
off the user price for Vincherry forever, for life, exclusively for all of you that listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already considered Vincherry, your CRM, if you feel like your CRM is letting you down, particularly in the time of need right now in acquiring clients, use the link in the show notes, get a discovery call booked in and see if it could be a good fit for your business. Now let's get back to the episode. I don't think there's anything that I didn't expect. The main challenge that's there that all founders will find when they get to sort of the 10, 20 period, because that's the bit where loads of companies get stuck, Yeah, like you say. And the reality of it is you need some form of infrastructure in there to scale. So for example, yes, I've got free teams across the business, but it's all very well saying, right, I'm going to hire 10 people for that team. If you've got one manager on that team, managers, direct people you can actually manage, the magic number's kind of seven, okay? You found it to be seven? Seven, Seven yeah. recruiters to one manager. That Why tends, is that the magic number? I don't know. It's not just in recruitment. It tends to be across the park. And what you want is if it's more than that, can you manage more than that? Yes, you can. How efficient are you going to be at doing that? How much time are you going to be able to give them? The efficiencies start to get damaged after that. Before that, you're not maximising on what you can get. So that's the magic number that, that I found that works. But it's not unique to recruitment. There are many books written Other about companies it. companies that you've... In different uh, yeah, industries. Different industries, yeah. yeah so seven, just to be clear, seven to one, because I think that's an interesting insight. We found when we surveyed our customers, yeah, it was around like between five and seven was the typical average yeah. number of recruiters to one manager. Yeah. And just to be clear, are you viewing that as those managers also contribute, also have a number and also billing, as yeah. well as manage it being like player coaches? Yeah, so the structure we've got and what we're working towards is with those managers they are developing up to seven people themselves with the idea and my role is i'm hands off so my role is to try and be on the business to go in and try and develop the managers that meet the criteria of being able to build but also meet the criteria of being able to be accountable for certain areas of management in terms of behaviors with the idea being we develop a second line of management so we've got two other guys coming on our most our longest serving team it's the general engineering team that should be coming through before the end of the year main manager two sub managers you build teams under them, you get a team of 21. We develop within that another manager, and that's how you manage to scale. Okay. And going back to your earlier question, what's the challenge with a lot of companies come between 10 to 20? It's the infrastructure, is the is the challenge. Realistically, if you can get people that are effective managers that you can trust, you can delegate to, and you have them time after time, you can escalate it. And the senior manager on that team, that's how you get them to be able to be a hands-off director. So yes, they're hands-on hands-on billing managers now, but the viewpoint and the structure is when you end up getting to this, mm. their role moves more to people management. Me, I then move back more to a macro level, open up other offices or whatever, mm. and you've got a, 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 an operation that theoretically I don't even need to be involved in that manages itself and grows itself because you have that infrastructure. But the main challenge, going back to it, between 10 to 20, getting that core infrastructure, because it is hard. Mm. So let's break this down a bit because I think this would be useful. So yeah. I'm assuming then the core part of that infrastructure is the leadership team and having people that you feel confident that you can put up to seven people underneath yeah. and then you can grow from there. So we've got leadership. What else are you investing in infrastructure-wise to be ready for this growth? Because I think this is where sometimes a lot of founders I speak to run into challenges. I don't know what you found. It sounds like you're investing in it now and getting it all ready but i speak to a lot of founders who think right when i get to 15 people we'll worry about that or like rather like let's worry about when we get to that whereas a lot of you know successful recruitment entrepreneurs i've sat down with it's like you have to have that infrastructure in place now to grow into yeah if you go i'll cross that bridge when i get there that's where the problems come in because the larger a company gets the more difficult 
it gets to be able to change the direction that you're heading in. Yeah. If you're heading in the wrong direction, you know, and it's one of you or two of you, you can pivot pretty quickly. Yeah. Pivoting a larger company, let me say larger company, but even past 10 people, all of those people you've got to get buy-in from, it becomes difficult. So the structure we have is to try and deliberately set ourselves up and invest in what we need before for a company that is a 40-person company. Yeah, I love that. So as we scale into it, we don't have to make as many amendments. What you don't want is if you... If you scale, the, the kind of thinking of we'll change that when it gets to it, you have to make a lot of change. Loads of change disrupts things. You want to have it proactively put in place before it gets there. So your actual change and involvement just looks linear. Nobody notices it because it's a nice, smooth process. Everything works, seems to work out well. If you try and do it all in one go, that's where you have problems. Yeah, I love it. So let's break it down. So you've got leadership, part of that. What else are you doing right now? What else are you investing in, getting ready to be ready to be a 40 person company are we doing anything are we bringing your finance in house are you making sure you've got documented processes for yeah. you know how we do things like what what else so a lot of it is having the documented process what we got so we have we've revised our training program a lot we spend an awful lot of time trying to train people so when someone let's say they're an experienced recruiter that comes in from another company even if they're a lot bigger than us they come in and they go oh my god their training is properly good so we'll put in a lot of companies just offer practical training we'll offer psych training so, for example, you get a lot of recruiters that will go, oh, it's a bit difficult doing that or a new market. They're really challenged with it. We can teach them through that. We deliver our training based on learning cycles. So audio, audio, visual, kinesthetic, all this kind of stuff. So we'll have documented processes for that as well. But also we're trying now, this stage of where we are, is trying to put people in place that almost, we spoke about it in a sort of pre-thing, but to sack myself. Yeah, so make yourself redundant. at the moment, we I do a lot of the marketing. And don't get me wrong, I, I love doing like, I love sitting there and doing the videos and, and mm. putting content out and things polls. like that. Love the polls. Love the polls. Can't get enough <laughs> of them. But it's as in, then you want to bring in a marketer and develop mm. that person on it. But again, try and bring someone who's better than I am. And then the administration, we've got that functioning there already. So well, first you said site training. Tell me about that. What do you mean by that? So psychological training. What, what does that look So like? basically you'll have it where goal management, proper understanding, short, medium and long term goals. Okay. So you're not just trying living for the moment, you're kind of understanding if you're putting the work in now, which is unpleasant, this is why it's worth it, this is what you're working towards. Okay. Then you'll have kind of the psychological bits. So a lot of trainees, when they come in, they come across a period which we call kind of S2 or whatever, which is where they, I don't know if you ever come across a model called, it starts off with like, Sounds a bit strange, but unconsciously incompetent. Have you ever come across this term? Yeah. No, I, I do know what you mean. It's, what's the cycle? Unconsciously incompetent, competently, uh, competent. Consciously incompetent. Consciously incompetent. Yeah, it's, yeah. A bit of a, then, it's a bit of a weird thing. Yeah. So we'll teach them through that, which isn't, it's not unique to recruitment. It's just general kind of psych stuff that we've built up either from my own knowledge or that we've read or that other learned, companies yeah. have implemented to try and build it up so we can develop those people. But Going back, because I mean, I promise I'd be it'd be a massive long answer if I said all of the infrastructure we do on it. But the idea being, we have documented processes, and then training and uh, benchmarks of where people should be. So the idea mm. that when we have marketing in place, administration in place, sales teams, BD, um, look account management, we are in a position where all of those functions work better than I could manage them, and therefore I could sit there and go, I'm. I, um, these people are better than me. I don't need to do anything. Mm. That puts you, the idea isn't to sell, but if you're an investor, that's what you want to see. You haven't got to do anything. But that means it's also a very well run, slick ship. That's what we're working towards. Okay, love that. So we've got the leadership team, 
the training, which is absolutely crucial. So, and also your processes, documenting how you do things, yeah. uh, benchmarks where people should be, these things. You've got, as you said, the the marketing piece. Yeah. Talk to me about admin. Like, what what does that mean? Like, are we talking about someone that's always cleaning your your database? Are we talking about people that? What does that look like in terms of admin? With the administrative stuff, we always have one of our philosophies is kind of simplify. So. If you make loads of admin- administration and paperwork or anything like that can get really, really complicated. So you've got, we work it out as, and if you've got GDPR, compliance checks. And I'll oversee the compliance checks and administration will then do the compliance checks. We can make sure we've got a double kind of red flag in place to make sure we're doing data cleansing yep. or anything like that. But in terms of actual set processes, we will have set processes in terms of, for example, let's say we're sending invoices out. A lot of companies that I, you know, that I speak to that are small than us or people have reached out to me and go, can I have some advice on, because we, we struggle to get paid. We will have it, and I don't know why most companies don't do this, we'll have it where if we've placed some with a company, we'll have our administration team send out, by the way, we just placed someone with you. Can you give us whether we need to fill in a any forms or anything to have us on board for a new client? The invoice is going to be on this date. It's for this person. This is it. Do we need to complete anything beforehand? Therefore, when it comes to the date, they're expecting the invoice. You've got the invoice out. This is the payment days. Then you've got your set reminders in place. And it's just it's just a set process. And we generally get most of our stuff paid on time. We don't have loads of issues. That's a big problem that a lot of recruitment companies had. And to be honest, it's probably something we've refined a lot over the last 18 months, two years, because we did have that issue in the pandemic and we didn't want to get back in that position yeah. again. Okay, really interesting. So just on that... Because you said a lot of people reach out, and then I just want to ask you how you see this business looking and structured at forty people. Because I think that would be interesting yeah. in terms of how you see it with those different parts. But where, where do like on average, how long does it take to get paid then right now? So for us, we generally do fourteen days. Fourteen so days. So most of the reality is most clients will pay about a week late. A week. So maybe, on average, people paying around 20 days? Yeah, probably people pay about 20 days. We'll do 14 days for standard. A lot of companies will say to us, look, we need to do 30 days. Not a problem, okay? So that's generally, but I would say the average for us, from someone starting to us getting paid is 20 days. And where do people go wrong then if you've had a lot of these conversations? One, they don't have even any sort of process. They're just sort of like, oh, we've placed someone in Seb's company, so let's chase up. Hey, Seb, you now need to pay as an invoice. I'll put a calendar invite in there for yep. a week. If I don't hear anything, then I'll call. Got it, yeah. So what you've done is you've built like a cadence, basically, of like when we place someone, we are proactive and said, hey, to prevent any sort of you saying to us, well, you need to complete this or you need to do that or you need to be in our system. You're saying, hey, we've placed someone, amazing, what? infrastructure do you have internally that we need to be on if any for us to get payment yeah. so you've basically just documented like when someone gets paid this is what happens and you've got someone responsible for that in your yeah. business accountable yeah so it's just is your advice then if you're struggling to get paid in 30 days and on average you're getting paid 90 days later or 60 days later which is obviously going to impact your cash flow yeah is like make sure that whoever it is in your business is one person that falls under their responsibilities and you document how we chase to get paid A real quick one from me and we'll get straight back into the conversation. Some of you may or may not be aware that I'm also the founder of a business called Hector. Hector is an all-in-one training platform for recruitment founders to maximize team performance. The reason why I'm sharing this with you is because if you are someone that is enjoying this podcast week after week, you might even share this podcast with your colleagues, then I'd love to connect with you. 
Our training platform is powered by top performers delivering practical training for today's market. We believe training a lot of the time in the recruitment industry is dated, is stale, is delivered by people that did it 5, 10, 15 years ago. And we are completely going against that. So a lot of the people that you're able to learn on this podcast, you're able to learn even more from at Hector. So if you'd love to you know, find out more about how we could potentially help you get more out of your people, ramp up their performance more quickly, then please connect with me on LinkedIn or click the link in the show notes where you'll be able to book a call with us. Let's get straight back into the episode. Yeah, that's the, the key thing. What happens is your question was kind of what advice would you give, like mm. as in what's a typical mistake that people make? What a lot of recruiters do is when they start a company – they kind of go, well, I can recruit really well. I'll be able to go and, you know, I'll be able to I can do this myself. The reality of running a business, there's books written on this as well. There's three pillars you kind of have to look after. One of them is the task, i.e. being a good recruiter. One of them is the day-to-day operations, which is that kind of stuff to make sure everything's done. And one is the vision of the platform of where you're going, how you're going to mm. build it so you know what to meet each grade. But the operational part is the bit where a lot of companies really fail on because if you end up behind, if you end up with cash flow issues, you've got no money, you're in trouble. And if you're unorganized, it becomes really, really stressful really quickly. You don't yeah. want to be in that position. Mm. So the bit of advice that I would give is make sure you're really tight on your day-to-day operations and set it up again as if it's – if you had 20 people and you have to look at it, right, I need to get paid, what infrastructure do you put in place and what process do you put in place so you make sure you get paid? Because if you don't, you could be out of business. Yeah. So let's just wrap this part up then. So Reverex, you get to 40 people mm. – how do you see, like, what's the org chart? Because I think that'd be helpful and this sort of ties it all together. So how do you see that from a leadership standpoint, from the admin department, from the marketing department, what org structure are you working towards and when that's a 40-person company? So the simple bit of it for me, if we kept it as the kind of three divisions we've got now, the three um, revenue streams, if you like, you've got a senior level of management, you've got a second line of management. That gives you the growth structure you need for the people. That you how many salespeople do you reckon if you're at 40? Well, if you're looking at that, apart from the main manager maybe if they're coming slightly hands off they're a larger team but they got 20 people or so you might go okay they'll spend only a minimal amount of their time maybe key accounts but generally speaking all of the people who are on those teams will be effectively billing apart from maybe you'll have you know if a key role certainly on advanced stuff or it you might have resources or non-billing yeah. non-staff so i think it's probably the easier way of doing it um myself my wife who does the who's bookkeeping then the admin team, probably a couple of those people, two, three at that st- uh, that size. And what would those job titles be? We'd just be looking at administration. Okay, okay. You're looking at administration. I'm not you, sure if you'd be like ops manager or anything like you that. Can, you can give job titles. It's, you might have the operational side of it in terms of an operations manager or something like that. I would. I don't think even at 40 people you necessarily need someone who's just going, right, you just do operations management. If you've got the right infrastructure in there, you have a lot of it can operate itself through either the admin team, the marketing team. Yeah. The, 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 you know, me a director in terms of, although really you don't really want to be doing any operating. That's the danger. If you if I'm operating a business rather than overseeing it, that's yeah. where you can get caught. Yeah, sorry, yeah. So two, three people in admin team. Sorry, I cut you. Yeah, off. two, three people in admin team. You probably have one or two people, well, one person marketing or whatever who can head up that bit. You'll probably be looking at an internal recruiter. Two or three directors, one probably sales-focused, one probably more ops-focused, one general overview and everything, mm. which should be me. No trainer? What, L&D? Yeah. I like training. <laughs> I do, do want you, so, to. And then, sorry, sorry. So then yeah. what would your role look like? Because like you said, I love the way that you're, because I think a lot of founders don't think like the way that you're thinking, right? Yeah. You're very mindful of, if I sit down 
you know, why would you not try and build a business that you're clear that, you know, I don't really have any yeah. intention of selling it, but why would I not build a business that if I were to, if someone was to knock on my door and said, hey, Seb, like, would you ever consider someone buying your business? Yeah. Why would you not build a business where you can go at me and go, yeah, so uh, if I was to leave this business, this is how it would work. This is my leadership team, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So what would your role look like? Because that might, talk, that would be quite a nice thing to add as well. So I kind of, it would probably be, I don't know, you could, do it, you could probably do it at 50 or whatever. And going back to the L&D part, I, yeah. I, I would want an internal L&D, but it wouldn't... I mapped it out a while back in terms of what it want. It'll probably be more slightly larger. I don't think... You might need it, but I'd probably get a good external sort of trainer or something like yeah, that, yeah. that kind of stuff. Going back to your question in terms of if someone sort of knocked... Was that the kind of bit? Well, so like, so you, you mapped out what the company might look like. What would be the high leverage activities that you would be doing? Because like you said, like, so what would you... What would the part Once you of, get like, to your... kind of 40 or 50, my main focus would need to be focused on the big ticket things that can impact the business, developing the senior leadership team yeah. so they can replace me, basically. That's your key part of it. Mm -hmm. So the areas that they don't know that they're weakest on, either that I can develop them on or I can go externally to be able to offer that development on, that part of it, working a lot with the management team and working probably to support people with big ticket accounts. So I know probably my best strength in the business in an active role is probably trying to win business. I've always been good at winning business. That's probably what I'm... What I'd be best in. However, I know if it's if I'm the only salesperson, that'll be a problem. Yeah. So it'll be developing people to be effective at that. But what what I'm really working towards, going back to my earlier point, I'm you try to build an infrastructure to sack yourself. So effectively at that point, you're on the business and then look at it like a, a helicopter viewpoint. What is probably best? And it'll probably be at that point more strategic role. Right, let's look at opening up a separate division. Mm. What infrastructure we'd need for that division to start that? Or we go into, let's have a look at the investment arm. We want to go and buy a smaller company. One of those founders has got a 10-person outfit that we know runs well, but probably is missing the infrastructure that we need. Right. Could you let's, bring them in, yeah. Let's get our management team, fold them into what we're doing, and then come under there. So it'll mm. probably be more at that point, really, my role working towards it would be strategic, non-operational business. The business operates itself. Strategic to see about growth of the wider business. Love it. You've clearly read a lot. We all read, well, not everyone reads, but like, you know, we consume a lot of information. Yeah. There's only normally a couple of books that you read that really have an impact. What have been the, the books that have had a real impact on you? Because clearly you, you know, love delving into yeah. things. Any one, two books that really stand out with this particular type of, you know, with this type of thing being of interest, I want to grow my business. I want to make myself redundant. I want to grow my business yeah. in the right way. Any any books that have had a big impact on you? There's a, there's a few. There's, I've read, I don't know, my bookshelf's like hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of books. But I'd probably go through ones that come to mind. Mm. One would be Good to Great, um, yeah, nice. which is the the most, that was the first sort of, I've read it when I was like 23. I think I was, I just got my first management job. I was just assistant nice. manager in mobile phones. And the branch manager said to me, Read, this. read that and I, I just that was wow i get this right and then after that a book that i guess would be what i uh, say the e-myth revisited which yes, is unreal that's the one which is that goes through the you need the operations people, yeah yeah you need the, the different hats lean the lean startup is pretty good that's more recent that's pretty good that's very much like build things that customers want rather than yeah it's about minimum viable products what yeah. it talks about it's more product but in terms of I know it's like California kind of tech you can based. take principles from that the right? principles are really good so yeah I'd say the ones that come to mind probably those three I mean I could list loads but no yeah but I just I just thought it was interesting because you, you sort of spoke a lot about yeah you know reading these things so 
as we come towards the end here then, you said one of your strengths is BD. What are the sort of principles that you really live by when it comes to being world-class at BD? It sounds really strange, but making your friend and then your business partner. <laughs> sounds really strange. A lot of people, the, the bit that, I've, when people first get into sales, the first thing they try to do is sell to people. doesn't work doesn't work nobody wants to be sold to do they Mm. so if you can make someone like you and they realize as a person there then the next thing you know they're kind of doing you a favor i mean i'm very i'm probably good at just relationship building and really if you want to get anywhere if you want to do a quick sale like when it was mobile phones for example it was transactional transactional if you want to actually do if you transactional in recruitment that's dangerous because you can be up and down what you want to do is try and build relationships with people where they come to you because they like you you'll have it where you don't want to be like this, but you will have it. Let's say you do some new BD, right, and you finally win them. What other agencies do you work with? Oh, this other agency. Okay, how do you get on with them? How many roles do they fill? I don't really fill anything, but our HR director really likes them, so they keep going back to me and never fill anything, just because they've got a relationship. Mm. But if you can have that relationship and you can deliver stuff, that's it. So for me, a lot of it is you can have a chat with them, find common ground, and I'm probably someone who's fairly good at finding common ground and interest with different people from different walks of life. And I think that, for me, I've always found pretty good in terms of it. And that's the base marker, I would say, of, you know, looking at it. If you can make them like you and they can have a chat with you and then they relax and they realise you're okay, then you start making mm. the ground and putting in the groundwork for it. But as long as it, it's got to be mutual benefit. I mean, ultimately, business is mutual benefit. It's the exchange of goods and services or whatever, but it's you want to work together because you like working with one another. You just mm. like each other, that kind of stuff. And that's how I look at sales, mm. BD. So I said, I wanted to ask you about your polls. Okay. This might be a hard one. Most interesting poll that had the most surprising result. Do you know what? I don't even know what I've <laughs> um, I, I do them because, I don't know, I, the, the polls I like the most, there's none that stand out specifically. The polls I like the most are the ones which someone asks a question which you know if you made, you know someone does like a LinkedIn post yeah. and then it's really controversial and then it's right, I'm nailing my colours to this flagpole, this is how I feel about it and, yeah. and then they'll just try and be divisive for divisive sake. I never quite feel comfortable with that because then it could bring company disrepute, make me look bad and I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Even if you've got certain opinions on certain things, you kind of look at it and go, you want to be reasonable, you don't want it to be interpreted the wrong way. The beauty of a poll is you can put a poll out asking that question and people then are able result. to answer honestly and anonymously, so you actually get a thing of it. There's no poll that I can't even remember what poll no, no, I put out yesterday. Okay, I just thought I'd ask because yeah, you, you put it out so many. Yeah. Why didn't we? I really liked. I think I obviously we've exchanged a few messages anyway, yeah. but really liked your honest advice for graduates. We're getting into that part of the year now. Yeah. Anything you want to leave people with that because. I think a lot of people resonated with with what you said. Yeah, it was quite a big. I think that was, that was a big. No, you invited me off. The, yeah, that I, was it. You, I saw it. I was like, mate. Obviously, it's overdue. I was, you know, sitting down um, doing a podcast. Like we spoke before, haven't we? Because you know, you said a career recruitment will test you mentally if you want to be good at it. Work in the office yeah. when you're learning. Nobody owes you a living. The crew will have highs and lows. What made you share all that? Are you seeing the opposite of these things I, when you're sitting down with people? I guess I'm speaking for my own perspective of where I would have been. You know, there yeah. things where people go, message to your 21-year-old self or whatever. Yeah. I left uni when I was 21. So that's how I would look at it. it was, when you come out of uni, you kind of, I've got a degree, going to make it whatever. And it is literally the cold, hard reality of the working world. Or if you want to be successful at something, you have to work hard. You have to be prepared to do it. But if you wanted one kind of advice that I would look at is 
a career, and I kind of, I think I put this out yesterday, start with the end in mind. So where is it you want to be, like long-term goal or whatever, if you think of that, and if you're then coming out, right, I've got to put the work in to get there. No one's going to give it to me. And it's the same in recruitment, and you do... You do have different people. I'm not a big goer on this kind of just because it's a generational thing. I just look at it as in a person personality thing. You will have people that will learn that, that expect also, things. They'll expect things and they learn end up learning the hard way rather than right, this is how it works. You kind of you've got to go out there and put yourself out there. Expect to be a spun for knowledge. You're not gonna know it all, especially at twenty one, not forty one, not fifty one, whatever. So go out there and do what you need to do with the end in mind of what what it where it is you want to go. Mm. That's the advice that I would give. Start with the end in mind. Seb, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope there were plenty of golden nuggets for you to take away. As you'll know, I'm your host here of the Recruitment Mentors podcast, but I'm also the founder of Recruitment Mentors. We're a online subscription-based learning and education platform. We're on a mission to help thousands of recruiters achieve their professional goals and successfully progress their careers through modern and engaging online learning. If you're a recruitment business owner listening to this, there's a good chance that you value self-development, personal development. You're trying to develop a culture of continuous improvement. But we've partnered with a number of grown recruitment companies who were struggling to understand how they can invest more in their people, how they can upskill them more quickly without spending more time, without having to spend thousands of pounds of external trainers. And we've ended up being a really great fit, modern fit for recruitment teams. We can ultimately help you get more out of your teams by giving your people access to modern and engaging online learning, which they can access on demand. The thing that's really cool about what we're doing at Recruitment Mentors is that all of the people that your teams are able to learn from and the people that are delivering the learning content are people that are in role right now. They're billing, they're actively facing the challenges that your teams are, and a lot of the time they're amongst the top performers within their companies, which means your teams are going to be way more confident to learn and spend time on their learning when they know they're learning from people that are doing it right now, have been there and done it. There's nothing worse than feeling like training is not relevant and not current. The best place to find out more about Recruitment Mentors and if we can help you accelerate your team's performance is uh, send me a message on LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn directly, and I'd love to connect with you and, and find out if we can help you get more out of your people.